minutes or so, but we already got a bunch of great questions. So we'll jump in and answer a few of those. Just to let you know who I am, uh, I co-founded InventRight with Stephen Key over 21 years ago, and we've been coaching and mentoring inventors very successfully ever since to license their products. And what licensing is, is renting or leasing your product to a big company. And I say renting or leasing because if they don't perform, you get it back. So you're not licensing or renting or leasing your product to a retailer. You're licensing it to a manufacturer that sells at a retailer. Okay. So you're not licensing to Walmart. You're licensing that bicycle horn to a company that sells bicycle horns at Walmart. You get it? So big advantages of licensing is one, you don't need to raise money. People go, I just need to raise the funds. You don't need to raise money. Because this big company you license to, this product is theirs now once you rent or lease it to them. So they're going to invest their money to manufacture and distribute and do everything that it takes to um, bring a product to market. Uh, they're also going to use their workforce. So sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising. They have this machine. Maybe they have 20 products, 50. Uh, we have uh, one of our coaches licensed uh, to a company that has over 8,000 products. You know, so they have this machine, sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising. So when your product is just one more product in their product line, you're plugged into that machine. That's a beautiful thing. You're not starting a business and you don't have those economies of scale, you know, because you got to hire this guy over here and that guy over there. But they're just working on your one product. You know, if you're starting your own business that you don't have the economies of scale there. And then you're tapping into their existing distribution. So if they're in 30,000 stores, boom, you're in 30,000 stores. So with licensing, you get the money, you get the workforce, you get the distribution all in one place. It's a beautiful thing. It's a lot sexier than these inventor TV shows because they're like, do you get the money? Don't get the money. It's like, you're going to get the money, the distribution and the workforce all in one place. You don't need to run a business. So it's a beautiful thing. Um, <clears throat> Let's jump in and start uh, answering some questions. So you guys can type your questions into the questions box. Mosh says, hi, Andrew, what are the areas I should focus on when doing my market research? So, you know, I think I shared this quite a bit in our last Q&A, but you want to know all the other products in the micro category of your invention. So, for instance, not all barbecue accessories, because that would be too broad, right? To become an expert in all barbecue accessories, all the different types for smokers and for this and for that, and you know that would be overwhelming. That's not something you can do that quickly. But to be an expert in your micro category invention, and every one of you have it, you just have to define what it is. Um, so for instance, barbecue spatulas. Could you spend four hours and know all the barbecue spatulas out there, their features, the price point, how they're marketing it? Yeah, you could because it's a, a smaller field. So you have to figure out what your micro category is. You know, it might not be um, all the doorstops, but all the magnetic doorstops. But really, like in that area, we um, would be advantageous to know other doorstops too, even though yours is magnetic. So I wouldn't get too specific, but you can get pretty specific because then you can go on to Google Images and you can look for these products. And it might link to a blog. It might link to a page where the product is sold. It might link to an article. It can link to all different things, but you need to understand these products in the space of your invention because 
companies do. When you approach a marketing manager and you got a bicycle accessory, trust me, that marketing manager knows all the other bicycle accessories out there. You can't just like have blinders on and pretend like these other things don't exist. Now, the other thing that I always like to talk about is most inventors, when they're doing their market research, they're doing it with completely the wrong attitude and whether it's conscious or subconscious. And the wrong attitude is mine's better than everything else. That one sucks. No, that one's no good. It's like you're trying to disprove all these other products and you want you don't want to do that. You want to acknowledge, oh, well, I see that one's like super cheap. I can see why people would like that. And this one's super expensive. And this one has that feature and that one has that feature. Like acknowledge and take in because they wouldn't be selling in the marketplace if people weren't buying it. So to just to say everything else sucks and yours is better than everything, completely the wrong attitude. You're going to really hurt yourself. You need to acknowledge these other products. And then you need to look at your product and go, is mine good? Does it fit in over here or over here? Do I need to make a few changes? Oh, I realized that I didn't realize that thing existed. I'm going to make a slight tweak to it now. So that's the attitude, Mosh. And what you're looking for is the benefits of each product. What are the benefits? Like it makes it easier to do this. It's easier to clean up or or whatever the benefits are. And then the price points. So you're kind of observing a range of price points and the marketing. And to be honest, a lot of the marketing that some of these companies are doing, you're going to use that same marketing in your sell sheet or similar marketing, but then you just highlight your point of difference. You're not stealing their marketing. A lot of times, like you'll see a barbecue spatula and there'll be five companies kind of marketing it somewhat the same, but you're going to tweak it because yours is different like this. So you're not stealing the marketing, but you're observing the marketing. And you probably a lot of times when you're doing a marketing piece, the marketing is going to be very similar to the other products that are out there in some ways. And you're but you're going to highlight your point of difference. OK, so um, it's a great question, Mosh. I can give you a pretty long answer there. Mosh also said, lastly, um, should I be doing surveys, focus groups, target audiences, targeting people in the industry, or is that not necessary? You know, surveys and focus groups, they say that only one in 10 people, like if you pay for their pizza or something, you get a bunch of people together that say they will buy it, will actually buy it when they're asked to open up their wallet. So don't, don't um, mistake focus groups of some kind as a verification that people will buy the product, okay? Um, you just want to go with the company's gut there. They see the marketing and go, well, if our customers saw this, they would want that. That's the big thing that you're doing most of the time. You don't have to have done focus groups. Now, focus groups could be useful because, you know, let's say you get them, let's say you made a product and you get them to hold it and you're like, wow, people are really misperceiving this thing and you could make a change. So I don't think they're completely not useless, but you can see customers interacting with your product. They help you make some changes. But don't mistake people liking your product on Facebook and don't publicly post your product if you're licensing it. Don't make public disclosure at all. But 100 people like it on Facebook. I get people tell me like, well, I just want the company to see that all these people liked it on Facebook. I'm like, they could care less. They know it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. So don't think people saying they like your product means something. People opening up their wallet means something. But what you're doing with licensing for the most part is doing a good marketing piece that intrigues the marketing manager. So they're like, oh, if our customers saw this, they would buy it. Okay, that's what you're, so, you know, you don't need to do all that. You don't need to talk to people in the industry. People in the industry you're talking to, Mosh, is the potential licensees, the marketing managers at the company where you want to license your product to. That they're the only ones that really matter. 
industry experts, your friends, your family, random strangers in a focus group, they can tell you whatever. But in the end, it's up to that marketing manager at the company is whether or not they think your product has legs and their customers are going to buy it. So, but you're basing that off good market research, right? So you're studying the marketplace and then you're addressing that in your marketing. So because you did your market research and you didn't say everything else sucks and mine's better and all this stuff. And that was your research, which you'd be surprised. I see inventors do that pretty often. They're like, or, or I'll talk to an inventor about something. This is not one of our students. And they tell me what it is. And I've been doing this forever. So I get things pretty quickly. And I'll go, I'm like, oh, it's like this. And they're like, where'd you find that? I'm like, whoa, I just typed in like literally the first keyword I thought of, or I'll do a second search. But people aren't using the right keywords either. So you have to use the right keywords. Um, it's pretty simple sometimes. If you have a magnetic doorstop, type in magnetic doorstop, you know. Um, but you, you got to use your imagination a little bit sometimes. It's not always that easy. Um, Daniel says, hi, Andrew. I know you want us to reach out to marketing managers via LinkedIn. Yes. Um, do we need to officially connect with them first or can we just send them a message directly through the app? Uh, probably a dumb question, but I just joined LinkedIn two days ago and not sure about the specifics. Thank you, Daniel. So yeah, I, I can tell you just join LinkedIn because the basics of how it works, um, and that's fine. That's not a dumb question at all because you're new to using LinkedIn. You have to ask them into your network first, and then you want to wait like two or three or four days, and then you approach them about showing them, asking permission, can I show you a sell sheet or a video I'd like to license a product to you. Can you take a quick look at it for, you know, can you take a quick look at it? So what you're going to do is invite them. And when you, in LinkedIn, it's kind of this weird, it's a little weird. And people go, people have approached me that don't understand LinkedIn. And they say, Andrew, I noticed that you have so-and-so on your LinkedIn. Can you introduce me? I'm like, I don't know them. I have, I don't know how many people have on my LinkedIn. It's like 10,600 or something at this point. And I know very few of those people, but you can add them to your network. And that's what you're going to do with these marketing managers. You're going to add them to your network. But before you do that, Daniel, since you're new, you really got to build up your LinkedIn. You should build it up to at least 50, 60, 80 um, before you start reaching out to marketing managers, because it's not good when you're reaching out and they see you have one connection. And those connections can be with other inventors. It could be with um, just other people on LinkedIn, you gotta, you want to build up, I would say about 50 or 80 connections before you start reaching out to marketing managers. It shouldn't be hard to do. Okay. Um, Hey Andrew, any tips for making your hit list? Yeah, I was, this is from Kevin. I was talking to somebody about this just today and they were using our invent right connect database. That's something that we give all our students. It's a couple thousand companies that said they're open to inventions and and I said, that's great. You can do that. But that's the secondary thing. The first thing you want to do, make a big list of retailers. A mistake a lot of people I was explaining to them make is they go, well, I got a sporting good product. Well, near me, there's Dick Sporting Goods and Big Five. So I'll look there. And then they look there for their potential licensees. Well, if you typed in list of major sporting good retailers into Google, now you almost get this with other industries, but you do for sporting goods. There's a Wikipedia article that lists an ungodly amount of sporting good retailers, have, most of which you've never heard of. So if you're not looking at those retailers, you're missing companies selling at those retailers. So you gotta make a big list of retailers. 
then you got to look at all those retailers because you know they're qualified because they're in the stores where you want to be. But don't, don't one, these are the big mistakes people make. They think like, oh, I can only look for companies that are selling more or less exactly the same thing I am, like more or less very close. Like, no, they could be like selling something in the same category if they're in the same store, the same aisle, but they're not quite, you know, in this micro category, but they're over here adjacent to it. So one, don't limit yourself to people making more or less the exact same thing. If they're in that category of the invention and they have distribution stores where you want to be, you should be reaching out to them. Um, the other mistake people make is they only list at the look at the few retailers they're familiar with. Stupid, stupid, stupid. I mean, I was talking to a student um, and I think I shared this story maybe on my last one too, um, last live stream. Um, and I was on the West Coast and I rattled off a list of a few sporting good retailers and they're on the East Coast. They rattle off a list of a few. I Googled, found that list. I'm not saying you're always going to find a list. You just need to find the retailers. Now, in this case, I type in list of major sporting good retailers, U.S. sporting good retailers, and I find a freaking list. You won't always find that, but you can find the retailers one one at a time. There was a ton of retailers on there and neither of us have heard about. And that's why I find that our European students or students in other countries, Australia and, and Asia, other places, um, don't have that many students in Asia, actually, um, that they don't make those assumptions. So they're like, well, I'm in Germany or I'm in Australia. And so they look for U.S. retailers. They look to identify those. But us, uh, some of us in, that live in the U.S., now we're making all sorts of assumptions. It can vary quite a bit by region and what's in your hometown. So don't make that mistake. Um, it's a great question, Kevin. Um, uh, Kevin says, also what happens if you license, if a company you license to gets bought, bought, bought out, or they can they simply drop your product or are you back to negotiation stage? So um, usually it's a good idea to put in a licensing agreement, a buyout clause, So uh, not a buyout clause, but if your company gets acquired by another company, this is what happens. And it's good to say, look, they're going to pay me the same terms um, or not, or they can bow out. So just to let you guys know, Kevin's saying, what if a company licensed to gets bought up? Can they simply drop your product? Um, any company you license to can drop your product at any time. Now you can put some ridiculous thing they're not going to agree to in the licensing contract, but they can decide you can't force a company to keep selling your product. Now they're going to have to give you the product back and they're going to have to pay you for royalties and a sell-off period of a period of time. They have six months to sell the product off and then pay you royalties on that stuff, that sort of thing. But any company can drop your product anytime. So if a company gets bought out and this is new companies involved, you know, they're going to look at that contract and decide if they want to and, and make sure you don't get lost in the shuffle. Reach out to that company. Ask your existing contact if they're still there. Who's my new contact? Who do I reach out to? Um, but they can back out of it anytime anyway. I mean, that's how licensing works. But you get your product back. Do companies want to spend God knows how much money launching a product and back out of a product that's selling well? No. So they only want to do that if it's not selling well. Or maybe something happens. Maybe something else happens. Maybe there's a change in management. Um, I've seen a few students license a product. And before it even got launched, then they got bought out by another company. And the new manager is like, no, no, we're not doing that. Well, came right back to the inventor. I've seen that happen. I've also seen plenty of um, uh, companies get bought out. And that company just continues to sell it. 
you know, and it's under the same terms uh, of the the first company that they licensed to. So, but either way, you're always going to get it back if they're not performing. Um, so do you have to go back to the negotiation stage? Yeah, I guess that's a possibility. I can't really remember. Usually the company either wants to keep with the, the contract or they don't want to launch the product. I can't remember a case in 21 years where the company is like, we're going to renegotiate this. We don't like the deal you did. They could if they wanted to, you know, they could. Um, but uh, I haven't seen that before. Um, and again, you could put terms like if you get bought out, they have to pay. But now are you going to hinder them from selling their company because of this one licensing deal over here? Their attorneys aren't going to agree to that. You know, like if your company gets bought out, you need to pay me three bazillion dollars or something ridiculous or the new company has to take all my product. No, you wouldn't want to write that. That's going to kill the licensing deal from the get go. It's more like if if they choose to continue with it, they need to use the same terms, you know. Um, so that was a thank you for that question, Kevin. That was a fun question. Uh <laughs> Jeff said, I'm thinking Invent Rights next book should be FAQs from the Monday Q&A. Thank you for all your valuable info. Thank you, Jeff. It really means a lot to me. And you, you guys can help us out. My back's kind of itchy here. Sorry. Uh, you guys can help us out um, by, I, I will see like when I watch YouTubers, I'm like, okay, I know it, I know it. But you know, when I really like them and they remind me to subscribe, click the notification button and like the video, um, I do it. So if that's something that you guys could do, I'd really appreciate it. Um, if you're not subscribed to the channel, like it. And then you get notified if you do the notification button when we're doing other live streams. We send out, uh, I post on uh, uh, LinkedIn and sometimes we put that in our newsletter and other things, but that would be a nice thing to do if you want to attend live. Um, let's see. So... Um, Okay, Latif, Latifa. Hi, everyone. Latifa from Toronto, Canada. That's kind of cool when people say where they're from, if you guys want to do that. Uh, can you please advise on the best way to contact and license a bakery recipe to Kickerland Costco? And would a recipe need a PPA? So first off, you guys shouldn't be working on a product where you just have one potential licensee. Now, Latifa is not saying that. But she's doing what most inventors do. They pick one or two or three at most companies they'd really like to license to. That's a recipe for disaster. Most of our students are reaching out to 20 or 30 potential licensees, manufacturers. Okay, They're not only reaching out to a couple. You're not playing the numbers game if you only reach out to two or three. If you reach out to two or three, you have two or three chances of success. If you reach out to 20 or 30, you have 20 or 30 chances for success. People will glom on to the biggest one they can find, the one right in front of their face, and they'll go, this is who I'm reaching out to. And then it doesn't work out, and then they never move forward. So Latifa, I'm not saying you're doing that, but don't do that. So that's great. Kirkland Costco is one of the companies you want to license to, but you need to license, you need to have a much, much bigger list. Now, you've got some other issues here now, too, because you've got a baked good you know, what are you going to file a provisional patent application on for a baked good? You know, um, you can get creative and you could do a method of manufacturing patent, which is not a type of patent, by the way. It's just the way I'm describing it. It's a utility patent. But OK, there's this 
And it's not you making it with your KitchenAid mixer at home. If you observe like in mass manufacturing, whether that's at Costco or in a factory where they're making cupcakes and you understand their manufacturing processes, which most inventors don't, you could file a, a, a patent or a provisional patent on the method of manufacturing. Because, you know, for the most part, food isn't um, patentable. Um, you know, so it's it's very hard to get intellectual property on food. Now, Latifa, could you file a PPA and say patent pending on it? Yeah, legally you can, because you can put whatever you want in a provisional patent and you legally you can say patent pending. So you could do that. But, um, you know, I, I if it's just a, a, a recipe, you know, it's that's really hard to to pull off. Now, you can keep it a secret. You could send them a sample. Don't you think it's really weird that like you, you try to send a food sample and it's coming from a stranger like I wouldn't eat it like it's coming from a stranger. Here's a sample. I don't care if it's packaged in a heat seal thing. I'm like, mm, this is coming from a sample. Like so when you're sending a food sample, you really got to create an aura of professionalism. So they're not like eating something that may have like something it's not supposed to in it right um so that's always a little weird thing to overcome so um you know intellectual property is hard with with food it just is and the the really big food companies are going to be really hard to to license to um the smaller food companies or the health food companies they're a little bit more friendly um but we get students licensing stuff all the time and the companies like they're like, well, that's great. You file a provisional. We're not going to file anything. We don't care. We'll pay you regardless. We don't do patents, right? So, um, you know, another thing you do is keep it a trade secret. So you're not going to tell them what the ingredients are. That would be one big thing that I would do is um, talk. If it's, you have to figure out, is it taste? Like, I don't know what you're trying to license. You know, you're trying to license a bakery recipe. Okay. So, you know, it's it, it's it's hard to license a recipe because so many um, housewives or house husbands or whatever have been giving away recipes for free forever. You know, so it's a it's it's they they're making it hard for a professional like yourself that wants to license your innovative new recipe. So it's doable, but it's hard. Um, uh, do, do, do. I don't know the name of this person, but their handle is plant based. Prepper. Okay, cool. Um, I have an invention with a few, you know, you know it's, it's, uh, prepping is probably more popular now. If you guys know what prepping is, I don't know if I'm going to do this justice, but you're, you're getting ready for some sort of crisis, whether it's like a COVID type thing or nuclear disaster or the power grid goes down or whatever. There's a million different things people think of. But I think that um, I, for fun, I would watch prepper videos sometimes on YouTube because I thought they were interesting. My wife didn't like them. She's like, this is too doomsday. And then after COVID hit, um, she was like, oh, that's very practical. So I bet there's a lot more mainstream preppers these days, people just getting ready for things going wrong. And they can really vary from like, I'm just going to get myself ready for a power grid being down for a week or something with food and supplies or things to keep warm to i'm going to prepare for the end of the world sort of thing but um anyway sorry to go off on a on a random tangent there that was your handle so i have an invention with a few different adapters needed do i need to patent every different part or can i create a patent for the entire system yeah you can definitely 
roll it all into one provisional patent application. And so um, I'll just call you plant-based prepper here. B B P B P. Well, that's too hard to say BBP. But anyway, um, so uh, what we advise is to file a provisional patent application. It gives you a whole year to fish off the end of the pier. You don't have to spend 10 grand on a patent. You spend $75 on a provisional patent. You know, so that's that's much better. We give our students software to file provisional patent applications and we guide them through the process. Um, uh, Bohemian uh, Sebastian said, hey, hey, Andrew, my name's Sebastian. Yeah, I think I've seen you on here before. When studying the market, what are some of the key points to look for when researching? Okay, I covered that earlier. So if you're late, um, sorry, you can watch the replay. You can go back and watch it. I covered it at the beginning. Um, maybe you were here though. Tina said, hi, Andrew. Um, Thinking for having Bait Butler on your display, I couldn't have done it without you all. Yeah. Oh, that's great, Tina. It's a, yeah, it's. I need to reorganize my shelf, but this is uh, Tina's product. Um, she's one of her students and really, really cool product. Biggest thing on my shelf. I wasn't sure I'd be able to get it up here. I got other things that won't fit up there. But um, yeah, so we, we got to see some more from you, Tina. We'd love to see another one. That's fantastic. And very flattering that you're a student that's licensed and you're still coming on to hear me ramble. So thank you for that. Um, let's see. Roaming, uh, oh, Marcus. Marcus here. Hi, Andrew. Could you use one PPA for a product that can be used in different marketplaces? For example, home improvement, crafting, there would be minor changes to the product for both. Absolutely, you can. You can absolutely do that. The only time when I wouldn't do that is if you didn't want one potential licensee to see this protection for this other version for another industry. I can't think of any scenario in which I would be concerned about that. And <clears throat> when you talk to a company, as you get in, as you have further discussions, probably not the first call, um, you're going to pull out and you're going to figure out where they're going to sell this thing. So if you've got it for another application with a whole other list of companies, and it's not going to step on their toes. You can let them know at some point, look, I, I'm, I want to be doing this in this other area as well. It's not going to hurt you guys because it's for a different application. And I just need to make sure you're okay with that. So that's pretty normal. And so if they saw that other coverage in your PPA, I, I, I don't see that being a problem. I'm just saying there might be an isolated incident where you want to license a different industry. And in that particular PPA, you don't include that other industry info. Um, but just because they saw it doesn't, they're not even in that industry. So I can't think of many scenarios in which I'd be worried about that, but it's a possibility. Uh, Jack says, hi, Andrew, thank you for all the valuable info. My question is, is it worth refining and perfecting the function of a prototype? Will that enable me to ask for higher royalties? Uh, the higher royalties thing, I, I really don't, see it. Um, you know, I, so I can't really say a lot of our students, because it depends on the product. That's why I can't really say, but I can give you some generalities. So a lot of our students say just, we do a virtual prototype for them. And it's pretty obvious how it's going to be made. So we do a virtual prototype. The company says, well, how are we going to make this? Well, there's that thing over there. And we just change like this and like, oh yeah. So this perception that every inventor needs to go out and spend five grand on a prototype and nobody would take you seriously if you didn't have it is completely, utterly false. Now, 
if you have if you if you can if you can't make the prototype yourself but you know they can based on other products or based on a gut or you're like 70% sure you can why do you have to make it why not get a fish on the hook first okay and get that interest and this perception i think that they're going to run for the hills because you don't have this perfect production ready prototype is just not true we do not see that here in invent right i can tell you we have students getting interest all the time. They don't go, well, well, forget it then. Why'd you waste my time? Like they don't do that. They were intrigued by your marketing. You're not selling your prototype or your patent. You're selling the benefit of your product, which is in the marketing. So they're seeing the benefit. They're intrigued. They're thinking, oh, our customers would want this. That's the main thing you're doing. And prototypes, they, get, they, they break. They don't get used right. But the marketing portrays it right every time. So you absolutely do not need to create a prototype every time and this thought that you create this prototype that's not even necessary and that's going to get you higher royalties no now is it necessary sometimes yeah sometimes it is you know let's say it's a highly technically complicated thing and there's no comparable like there and it's not like well that that's goes for 1995 and that goes for 2495 and i just put a hinge over there and they're like oh yeah yeah we can do that or you just give them an idea of how it's done but Let's say they sometimes I get what I call energy inventors, like they have this new type of energy and, you know, and I'm, I'm like, OK, everybody's going to be very doubtful. So you need to prove it somehow, way, shape or form. So if you have a product where people are going to be very doubtful, you might need to make a prototype. But even then you could get the interest. And then if they didn't want to work on it, make a prototype, then you could, but at least you've got interest now. If you don't have any interest and you spend five grand on this prototype and, you know, and then you still don't get interest, that's a lot of money. And we want our students to have the financial ability to continue to move on to other products. And a lot of people get a false sense of moving forward by throwing a lot of money at patents and prototypes. And it's truly a false sense. And it's also lazy because people do it because like when you get a patent attorney, now if you're doing it well, the way we teach our students to, you're you're giving the patent attorney all the right information. Most inventors don't do that. They go, here's my idea, patent it, let me know when you're done. Okay. And then you, you then you can walk around feeling like I got somebody working for me. I paid that patent attorney 10 grand. I'm good. I'm gonna, we're gonna make a lot of money with this thing. And you're like, oh, I need a prototype. Okay, I'll pay this prototyper. And you give that, you give this guy five grand. He's working on that. You got all these people working for you, right? And then you get all that done, and then you just sit on your hands and you don't do shit. And that's what a lot of inventors do, or they make feeble attempts at marking materials or reaching out or whatever else. But they felt good for a while because people were working for them, the patent attorney and the prototyper. And they didn't need those things. They could have filed a provisional patent, not a $10,000 patent. They could have made a marketing piece instead of make a prototype. I'm not saying never make a prototype, guys. I'm not saying that. But they could have make a marketing piece because you're like, I know this. they can do this. you know. Now, you might want to duct tape something together and you, you maybe it's a dog toy and your dog plays with it. And you're like, oh, even though it kind of falls apart, I know they can make it right. And so you might make something crude that you might not show in your cell sheet. Why don't you show a beautiful 3D rendering instead? But people get a false sense of moving forward by spending money with patents and prototypes. And so I'm not saying it's not always necessary, but rarely is it necessary using the invent right approach. Okay. Um, okay. 
I think I answered, Justin, if you want to, after the replay, Justin's asking what's the best way to go about searching for companies to license your idea. I covered that at the top. So if you missed that, you can just um, watch the replay when it's done. You know, I don't know. I never bothered to look at my own live streams and see how long it takes to go. Um, the recording takes to go live. I think it's immediate. I would think an hour at the most. I don't know, to be honest. I never bothered to look. Um, I don't understand this one. Uh, Denny said, hey, Mr. Andrew, I've been watching you and Stephen Key for some years now from Washington, D.C. and live and learned so much. A very useful, knowledgeable Q&A. Thank you, uh, Denny. So how can I get my inventions drawn safely without it being patent? Without it being patent. Um so are you worried about your idea being stolen? I mean, if to find somebody to, to draw your ideas, you can get a high school or a college student or an illustrator of some sort, um, and they can draw your, your product for you if that's necessary. But you have to determine if a, a drawing is going to cut it. I don't know if you're talking about with regards to putting those, if they're line drawings, great. You get somebody to do those. You can throw those in your provisional if you can't draw. Great. But drawings per se are typically not appropriate for a marketing piece. They're not going to look. How many times do you go look at advertisements for products these days and it's a drawing? It's a picture of the freaking product, right? And so, you know, that's why uh, 3D renderings, uh, beautiful renderings that look real, those are better than just a drawing. I wouldn't recommend putting a drawing in most cell sheets. Now, I have students that work on toys and they do get an artist to draw something up and that can be perfectly appropriate. But usually outside of toys uh, for a uh, for a provisional for a provisional patent, these line drawings are fine and great. But for your marketing piece, probably not. You're probably going to do a 3D rendering these days, you know. Um, Denny said, I truly appreciate everything you've been doing. True blessing. Thank you, Denny. Um, uh, concrete. Uh, that's their handle. When pressing multiple times to companies by email, should you start a brand new email every time or should you continue the thread for your previous submission? That's a great question, Concrete. You should absolutely continue the thread so they can see you've been trying to reach them for a while. Like the most annoying thing you can do for a marketing manager is to say, you know, I've been sending you emails. Did you get them? How come you haven't replied to my emails? And then the emails aren't attached below. First of all, never say it that way. You don't say it with that tone. I'm just being silly. But um, always have that stuff attached. Unless you said something stupid, then don't. Then go, okay, he's going to, they never saw that. They probably didn't even look at it. Going further and further down in his box, probably never look at it. I'll send a new one unless he said something stupid. But otherwise, it's really great to just send a brief note and say down below, just want to check if you guys are open to uh, licensing products from outside product developers and something like that. And absolutely show the chain, right? Except the only exception, which is, which I never really said before, is if you said something stupid. I think the reason why, I don't really say that as our, our students don't do that because they're so coached and trained, talking to their coach every week. And then our negotiation coach is helping them. But I'm realizing, you know, you guys aren't students, you're, you're fans, maybe, um, maybe you just stumble across this thing. So um, if you do, if you, I do see non-invent right students do 
say pretty dumb stuff. And if later you realize, oh, that's not the way I should have sent that email, don't freak out about it. They might have completely forgotten about you. People get so much email now. Send another fresh email. Do it right. Um, more than likely, they won't even remember you. You know, if you did send a stupid email and you have a particular email signature that's very unique, um, you know, you might want to change that. If you if you said something really stupid, but uh, you know, I, I I think you'd be fine. Uh, Mike said hi from Toronto. You're a rock star, Andrew. Thank you, Mike. Um, Peter said, "How simple can an idea be?" Whoa, I love that question. Pretty freaking simple. Um, Steve and I have been amazed at what our students have been able to license. Um, the simplicity of some of it. Um, you know, it's going to depend on the the company. Um, some companies. Steve and I had talks about this before, and I've talked about it publicly before. Some companies are kind of really risk adverse. And for for you to show them something that's just a slight tweak, and there's eight other companies selling this thing, and you just have a slight tweak to give them a point of difference. And they're like, oh, we didn't want to get in there because it's kind of generic, but we know those are selling well. And then we got a slight improvement here. That's pretty safe, right? So some companies like to go with stuff like that. It's not too big of a change. Then other companies are like, no, it has to be pretty significant. Like the, the infomercial DRTV guys, the as seen on TV guys, like they need a big like wow factor, right? And then other companies like a, somewhat of a wow factor. But if you think about it, a lot of inventions are fairly incremental improvements over time. You know, they're not these massive um, changes. But so then people read into what I'm saying. They're like, Oh, but my my invention, because everybody in Venice thinks this, my invention is a huge, it's 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 revolutionary. And the other person's like, oh, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's not a big enough change. It really is going to depend on the company. If if you as a consumer thinks that other consumers are going to look at your product and they may buy your product over other products in the micro category, you know, sitting next to it on the shelf, and you truly believe in your heart that not you, but others will see that as a good point of difference you're good to go. Whether it's a minor change or a major change, it is worth spending 75 bucks on a provisional, getting a sell sheet, virtual prototype, making your list of companies and reaching out to companies. If you believe that people, but not just you believe that you would buy it, but you believe others will buy it. A good marketer gets out of their own head. A good marketer can get in the head of an 80 year old grandma or my daughter's nine, a nine-year-old girl, or a 35-year-old woman, or anybody, or somebody that's a plumber, or this or that. Um, I've always been very good at that because I always, I'm always thinking about the other person. That's just me. That's the way my family has told me, and that's why I'm in coaching. I guess I'm always thinking about the other person, what they're thinking. So it's, it's you need to get out of your way sometimes and go. How are other people going to perceive this? And if you think everybody perceives the world through your lens, you you will never be a good marketer. You know, now sometimes you're lucky, like you're a plumber, you come up with a new plumbing innovation and you know what plumbers want so you can market well to them. But sometimes you're like, I get students come up with this cool kitchen gadget. They're not the cook, their wife's the cook, but they came up with this new kitchen cutting board. So you need to get out of your own head and think about people that cook in the kitchen, how they think, you know. So I don't remember whose question that was, but that was a great question. Let's see if I can give somebody credit there. 
I'm just trying to find my space here, guys. I'm lost. Oh, yeah, that was Peter. How Peter just had very he has a very simple question. How simple can an idea be? I love that question, Peter, and hopefully that was helpful for everybody. Um, <laughs> Tommy says, you're looking fresh. Thank you, Tommy. I think that the lighting's weird. I'll get the lighting eventually right in here. Um, oh, Mike said, what does it mean when a company says interesting or maybe regarding your idea? Well, no company is going to even say that if they're not interested. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to license your product. We get students get initial interest all the time. They talk to companies, you know, sometimes... The student will reach out to 30 companies and five companies show interest and and then four fall off and they end up doing a deal with one. Maybe only one shows interest, but that's the right company. They do a deal with that company. Maybe they all fall off, you know. Um, so. Initial, what, what do you say when a company says interesting or maybe you get on the freaking phone and you talk to them and the fact that they are willing to take five minutes, it's never five minutes, right? But the fact that they're willing to take five minutes to talk to you on the phone, that shows true interest. When they say, if they're actually, I don't really find that companies say interesting or maybe. I, I don't know if you made that up because it it's not usually what companies say. Um, you know, they usually ask you a question or two or this or that. If they show any inkling of interest, get on the phone and talk with them. Okay. Because, and if they start emailing, okay, send it, this, send it, get on the phone and talk with them. Now, you need to know how to handle yourself on those calls. We can help with that. We help all our students with that. Our negotiation coach, Paul, will prep the students before every call to tell them how to handle the call. And if he goes several calls and emails, our, our negotiation coach, Paul, will say, okay, this is how you want to guide the conversation. There's, there's one of the biggest things that I can share is you as the inventor, and don't get freaked out about this, because if you have somebody, whether it's us or somebody else that really knows how to license, they can guide you on this. Um, most deals will never get done if you just respond to what the company says. Oh, you want your PPA? Okay, here you go. Oh, you want a prototype? Here you go. Okay, you want this? You want this? No, it's not that you don't want to give those things to those people. It doesn't move the deal forward. A marketing manager, maybe the company's licensed five products, but this marketing manager never has. It's not something they do all the time. They don't know how to move licensing deals forward. I'm not going to say that about all companies, the vast majority of companies. If you use, they don't have a process. OK, and if you it, sit around waiting just for them to tell you what to do next and you just follow like an obedient servant. OK, you want this? OK, deals will not get done. The vast majority of your deals will die. So we guide inventors to guide the company. You're like, well, I can't guide this big company. Well, they're just a person. They're a marketing manager. You're not being pushy, but you're guiding the conversation. And a lot of the time, the things that they say you can just redirect the conversation. They don't even bring it up because they just didn't know how to start the conversation. So a lot of times, like they'll ask for your 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 patent or provisional patent. Never give that to them. And most of the time, when you get on the phone with them, then they don't even ask you for it. They were just using that as a mechanism to start the conversation because they don't license products all the time. Because that one marketing manager has been with the company a year, for example. Even though the company's done eight licensing deals, you have to realize that that's what's going on here. They're not going to be like, oh, here's our formal process for licensing. And it's all like neat and clean. No, it's a freaking mess. And if you rely on them to close it, most of the deals won't get closed. The vast majority of deals will not get closed if you just respond and 
to and let them completely guide the conversation recipe for disaster okay um let's see uh so thank you mike that was a good one and uh kevin says andrew is it possible to license a slogan to a tourist board and if so would you take the same steps as you would when licensing a product to a company well first off again going back to what i said earlier I don't think you guys should be working on products where you got one company. That's not, you're not playing the numbers game there. You know, if you reach out to 20, 30 companies, you have 20, 30 chances for success. So when you come up with a slogan for one company, it's not an invention, but it's a slogan. Now, could you apply that slogan to 30 other uh, tourist boards? Well, okay, then that's more interesting. So let's, so first let's address, don't work on a product that's for one company. Say to yourself, could this, could I do a version of this for other companies? Now I'm gonna not gonna tell you if you're really passionate about it, do it, but you're gonna file a PPA, you're gonna make the marketing materials do all that for them to just go no. You know, that's not playing the numbers game. So the other thing that Kevin is kind of throwing in, which is unusual, which he wants to uh, license a slogan. Now, I think I had a couple Q&As ago, I said that we had a student, this is the only time in 21 years, he wanted to license the product, they really liked his trademark, they ended up licensing a trademark the trademark to the company. They're like, we don't want your product, but we want the trademark. Only one time that happened in 21 years. Nobody even brought it up ever. So licensing a slogan is a hard thing to do. It's like you're saying, I'm going to be your advertising agency. I, I'm going to force it on you. And, you know, this is what you should do. Just the the powers that be. And it's like, it's something that could get you a job if you want to be an advertising person within that company. But I, I don't see it as being a good use of your time. Now, in the area of alternative things to license, we had June, she licensed like 80 pieces of her artwork to go on people's physical products. So um, to companies' physical products. So she notices um, uh, companies making this certain type of product and it has a flower pattern and has little cats on there or whatever it is. And she's noticing they tend to put artwork on their products. So she'll reach out to those companies and license and and sometimes they'll put on multiple SKUs and she licensed like 80 different, it was multiple SKUs, sometimes the same product, but different versions, different designs. So she licensed her artwork. You can totally do that. But licensing a slogan, it's, is it possible? Yeah. Do I have a lot of students working on that sort of thing? Next to none. So if people were working on that more, might I see some success with that where I never have? Maybe, but we're really not encouraging students to try to license slogans. And resist the temptation to just come up with ideas for this one company. Now, if you come up with that one company and you're like, oh, these other 20 can do it as well. Great. Fantastic. But if you're like, it's only for this company because it's around their patented invention and it couldn't be a variation I licensed to anybody else. Eh, that's not, that's not really going to work. Okay. That's not, you could license that one company, but it's just not worth the effort. You're not playing the numbers games game, which is, I'm going to do a sell sheet. I'm going to file a PP. I'm going to reach out 20 or 30 companies. Now I'm going to do all that, reach out to one company. You know, it's a lot of work for one company. Um, oh, Ado says, how would you go about narrowing down the industry they wish to invent for? Um, Ado, I, I think, are you saying, oh, I don't know if you're saying the industry that the company wishes to. I guess you're saying the industry that you want to invent for. 
Um, you you got to do something. I don't think you have to be fascinated by it, but a category you like, like if you hate camping and why would you come up with camping products or you hate cooking, you know, but if you're like, you know, I'm not that big of a cook, but I see a lot of opportunity in kitchen gadgets and I could observe all these things work. And I, I see my wife working in the kitchen or my husband and I know how she uses a whisk. I can come up with stuff there. So I would say you're either um, you, you don't want to work in a category that you're turned off by. Uh, but it could be one that you can kind of figure out if you're not an expert in the area. I don't think you need to be doing that thing day in, day out in order to invent there. I think you can observe and look at product reviews and stuff there. Um, yeah, he was just clarified a little bit more. So um, so then, then what you can do is kind of study broader categories. You can get on Google Images. You can study all the, all the barbecue accessories. You can study all the kitchen cutting boards, you can study all the door stops, and then you start to get all these images coming in and then you can narrow it down a little bit. And you could do that for another one, another one, you're going, you know what, I really like kitchen, I really don't like automotive, or I really like this, and I really, so just by getting on Google images and just studying some product categories and looking at products there, which is fun, who doesn't, you guys all like to do that, I'm sure, um, might be a way to figure out what, what category you wanna start in. You know, I really, really like that. Most of the time it's just driven. Somebody comes up with an invention in a category. And they're like, well, that's the one I'm going to work in. They don't really look at the whole category in the industry and decide, you know, I'm going to really, I'm going to invent toys or I'm going to do kitchen gadgets or I'm going to do garden, you know? So I think to be conscious of it, although at Edo, um, I think that's a great thing. Uh, Brad said, congratulations, Tina. Tina, you licensed that a while back, I think. Um, it's been a while. Um, thanks for saying we're a game changer, Tina. appreciate that. Uh, Casey said, I have a simple patented product that I would love to have licensed. What is the best way to do that? Well, that's a very general statement, Casey. Uh, the best way, I believe, in my biased viewpoint, is to license it because like i said at the top of the hour it's the big company's money it's their workforce and it's their distribution you get the money the workforce and distribution all in one place so it's to license it so watch our youtube show i would probably get our book one simple idea so if you if you go to amazon type in one simple idea by stephen key um, you'll find that book's a great book we don't hold back in that book it's a great book that stephen and i did um and that's that's where I would get started. You need to get your bearings. When you ask such a general question, I can't possibly answer it. So you need to kind of get more into licensing and understand licensing and then ask some more questions. But thank you for asking it. Um, hmm. uh, Radu said, hey, Andrew, can you talk about the challenges of working with a company that has never licensed products in the past? Any tips for success? It will be, and our negotiation coach can tell you this, way more painful. But we've had plenty of students that got interest from this big company, this great company. You can tell it's a right match. This product is perfect for this company. They're interested, but they have no idea how to move that deal forward because they've never done a licensing deal before. So you have to train them. So our negotiation coach talks to the student and then the student explains things to them and like they might disagree greatly on something and then you come back and say well if we don't do that if we don't put that in the contract then this and this can happen 
and that wouldn't be fair to me. And they're like, oh yeah, that wouldn't be fair to you. Yeah, that's, that'd be, you know, so you kind of like what you get is you presenting um, an issue or a term, they argue it a bit, you make your case and hopefully they'll agree to some of it. Now it's a give or take with negotiations, but the negotiations are gonna go way longer with a company that has never licensed a product. Um, they're gonna ask, gonna be, need to be a lot more patient. Now, if they're level-headed people, they'll see the stuff we're presenting and go, oh, yeah, okay. You know, but sometimes because they haven't done a lot of licensing, they're not level-headed. They have misperceptions. Um, if it's just the, and then if they have legal counsel that doesn't know what they're doing, like some general counsel doesn't really understand licensing, they can get bad advice there too. Um, so what you have to do, Red do, is you're going to break them in. You're the first inventor to break them in. And I can't think of a better team than the InventRight team to help you break that company in and um, to do their first licensing deal. Uh, most companies are open to outside ideas. And most companies these days, a lot of them have licensed products. It's, it's harder to find ones that haven't. But are there plenty that haven't too? Yeah. But they liked your product enough to go outside of their comfort zone. They've never licensed anything before. So that says a lot. That says a lot. You should feel confident that don't freak out when they haven't licensed because they still reached out. They still wanted to talk to you. And obviously they haven't done that in the past. Maybe they didn't have the right people at the company looking at ideas or for whatever reason. So realize they're feeling like your product has a lot of value to do something new that they haven't done before. Because companies will typically do what they already do. They sell cheap products, they'll sell cheap products. If they sell expensive products, they'll sell expensive products. If they're doing fishing accessories, they're going to do fishing accessories. They're not going to jump into hunting accessories. You know, they're going to do more or less what they already do. That's what licensing is. And what you're doing is you're tapping into that machine, the money, the workforce, and the distribution. You know, so when inventors want to present this new business model to this company, like I remember I had this one student, they said, I want them to monogram everyone. And I'm like, Dude, like, look at their product line. They sell at Target and Walmart and Home Home Depot and stuff. They're selling at these massive retailers. They're not custom monogramming each one. That's not what they do. You should not even talk to them about that. You don't. Oh, but they could do it. They could. They could. They could. No, that's not what they do. And you might say, well, Andrew, it's a new invention. That's not what they do. Well, it's a new product. But to change their business model or have them go in a completely new category they're not even remotely in, um, rarely, rarely works out. I've seen it work out a few times over the years. But you're going to identify companies that like, whoa, that, that, yeah, that matches what we do, you know. Um, okay. So uh, I get this all the time. Uh, something Diego, J-N-B Diego. Uh, hello, do, sorry, I shouldn't address you guys like that. That's not polite. This is, I don't know, something, Diego. Yeah. Um, sorry, Diego. Uh, hello, do you recommend sending an NDA with a sell sheet when looking to license? Thank you. I, I can't, anything I share today, it shouldn't be considered legal advice. I'm not an attorney. So consult an attorney before you, you move forward with anything. That's my little disclaimer. They always give halfway in. Um, the thought that you're going to ask every company to sign your NDA is you're going to be beating your head up against a brick wall. So you're going to file a provisional patent. That's smart. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling you what our students do now. They file a provisional patent. That gives them a placeholder in time. I've got protection from this date. 
if they ever file a utility, they can reference, they'll get protection from that date. Um, just imagine you get, um, you get 100 ideas from inventors a month. And every inventor has their own NDA. And they all want you to sign it. Now, somebody, legal team in the company needs to review that. What if it says something in there that they own your company, that you own their company or something like that? You know, they need to review it. It's not practical for them to review 100 NDAs every month. Now, sometimes if they have an NDA, they'll send you theirs. It usually protects them more than you. And sometimes it protects you a fair amount too. But most of our students just, they don't ask about it. They don't ask the company to send theirs. The company sends it. They say, sure, I'll sign it. They read it. If they're okay with it, they'll sign it. If not, they won't. And most of the time, nothing is signed. And you've got your provisional patent as your placeholder in time to create, to try to get to a marketing manager and now to create this wall between you and them because you're involving their legal team that your your most companies won't sign your NDA, first of all, you know, because it's just not practical. And then even if you do, you're going to, it's going to be back and forth for weeks before you get them to sign it. Um, so I'm not telling you guys what to do. This is not legal advice. Seek the service attorney if you need legal advice, but I'm just telling you what our students typically do and the world that attorneys live in and the world that we live in for closing licensing deals all the time are two very different worlds. So you just have to decide how paranoid are you going to be, you know, um, Okay, I think we're at the hour here. Um, let's see. Let's do one more with Sam because I do have two minutes. I always like giving a lot of value. Uh, question, LinkedIn profile should have a company name attached to the person. Uh, PL's rant about LinkedIn tactics. Thank you. I, I don't know what you, what you mean by that. Um, no, I don't think you need a company name. It could be the person. LinkedIn profile should have a company I don't know if you're saying the companies you're trying to license to. Yeah, when you're licensing the companies, you're going to Google the, you're, you're going to LinkedIn search um, a marketing manager for OXO. Let's say it's OXO, that, that kitchen gadget company. And you're going to find them and you're going to reach out to them. So, um, I don't know. Oh, please. Oh, you just want me to rant about LinkedIn. You want me to talk about different LinkedIn tactics. Okay. Um, yeah. So as, as an inventor, you don't need to have a company name on, on your LinkedIn profile. In my opinion, you don't. And if you do just make it your full surname, like my name is Andrew Krause, Andrew Krause designs, Bob Smith designs, and it looks nice. And you can put that up there. And all the States I know of, if you use your full surname, first name and last name, put designs behind it, it appeals for a medical device, a kitchen gadget, anything. So it's fantastic. So it's kind of a generic. And um, in most states that I know of, you don't need to file a fictitious business name statement if you use your full surname and you're not really selling anything. So um, yeah, I think that's perfectly fine. So reach out. You got to build up your, your LinkedIn list. Um, you got to build up a bunch of companies there. Um, you're not just reaching out to those. You got to build up your LinkedIn contacts before you can reach out. You should have about 50 or 80 contacts before you start reaching out to marketing managers. So they're not looking going, oh, this guy's just the spammery as one contact, you know, so that's important. So that's a little tip there. Um, most, for the most part, our LinkedIn advisor, Benjamin Harrison, he's our kind of counselor in that area for a smart pitch program. He does not believe in sending custom 
connection request. So when you send a connection request, it has a generic thing. He just keeps it plain like that. Just clicks connect. That's all. It's really simple. To ask a whole bunch of stuff there, you're introducing yourself and you're asking all this stuff. It's a reason for them not to accept you. So instead, you send a standard connection request. And then if they add you four or five days later, then you reach out. Okay. And you don't send things unsolicited. You ask permission too. So those are my biggest really kind of general, general tips, you know? Um, okay. So I think we're at the hour. Um, if you guys can help me out, if you appreciate all this help, if you can click on the subscribe button, click on that little bell notifications button and give a thumbs up to as many of our YouTube videos as you can and watch them all. They're all free. I think we have, don't quote me on this. I think it's over 700 now. Um, but I would like just to let you know one of our goals, we like to go from 50,000 subscribers to 80,000. And I would like to see that in the next eight months or so. I don't know if that's possible, but if you guys could do your little part to help me out there, that would be great. Thank you so much, guys. Bye.